Ice the pies that builds the boat and ice the fire that sails her. Ice the fire that catches the fish and takes them home to Lizer. Good morning, good morning. Happy spring out there to you. It's time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill, and around the world, WERU.org. Time for Boat Talk, the call-in radio show here at this community radio station with your old rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, and Giffy Full is back. We're glad to have you back here, Giffy. Thank you. Welcome to be back. Um, Boat Talk is a call-in show, too. We have a call-in number for uh, anybody who would like to... uh, Make any comments or questions. It's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. And boat talk is. Uh, we've been doing it for ten years now, and I, Mike and I, I, and Giffy will agree too that you seem to always learn something new here on boat talk. Like Giffy was away, but last last month on boat talk, we um, we discovered that bald headed schooners were boats that have gotten too close to clipper ships. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered where the pun was coming there. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> yeah. So when you're on a bullheaded schooner, are you sailing topless? Oh, it just can go on. And, uh, and we did, we talked about uh, boat rigs last month, yeah. among, among we, other things. We got, we got way beyond uh, my comprehension of that yeah, stuff. A bald-headed schooner uh, doesn't have a bowsprit, does it? Uh, isn't that it? Oh no! No, 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 no head, doesn't have top top mass. Topsails doesn't have top. Doesn't have top mass. Yeah, no topless. Which is the sails above the regular sails yeah. get to catch the extra wind when uh, things are kind of light. Anyway, Giffy Foley, we're so happy you're back. Uh, you spent the winter down in Florida. See any nice boats this winter? No. <laughs> they're not making them anymore. Giffy uh, is of the opinion that there uh, is a dearth of, uh, uh, you know, uh, good-looking boats, especially in the Florida area. And, of course, Giffy is a, a uh, pretty world-famous uh, marine surveyor of a, a mature age, shall, shall we say. And uh, Boy, you know, are you polite. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get them later. <laughs> uh, and uh, does nothing but make us look good. But anyway, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about on Boat Talk this morning. Um we're going to talk to Chummy Rich, I guess, who's uh, building a wooden, wooden yep. lobster talk boat right now. Talk about lobster good boat, boats. type boat, yeah. Yes. Also, uh, uh, when we get to it, we'll uh, hopefully get a hold of uh, Steve Rinker up in Hamden. Steve, a couple of years ago, back in 11 of 08, we interviewed Steve. He was uh, going to race around the world in a 10 foot sailboat. And I've always wondered how that turned out. So we'd like to catch up with Steve and find out the race was. Uh, fairly canceled, and uh, we'll tell you what happened to the boat and everybody else. So, um, it was probably a happy ending, actually, taking a look at what what they were really up against. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting story. And we'll take calls about any time, and that's probably too much stuff right there. And uh, real briefly, there's a couple of things in the news. The Maine Lobstermen's Association is upset about uh, offshore turbines, and mind you, three have been permitted for demonstration in inshore waters uh, down. Uh, Oh, um, I forget where they are. Cobscook Bay? Co- uh, I believe there was one off of uh, Jonesport, uh, one off of uh, Vinyl Haven, and possibly uh, Damaris Cove, um, I believe, anyway. They are upset that... Um, uh, they Their understanding was that lo- uh, any wind turbines would be offshore in federal waters more than three miles out. Most of the lobster fishing occurs within three miles. And uh, they are now upset about several things. The permitting process, they think, is going to get special treatment for the wind turbines. They're also tax-exempt 
from uh, state taxation. They don't like that, and they want a seat at the table as lobbyists to, uh, um, you know, get the uh, uh, get the thing to turn out so it does not impact the lobster fishery, um, you know, in a in a bad way. Well, that's not all they're upset about, too. They're, they use herring for bait, and the uh, the federal regulators have cut back the uh, herring allowable catch this year by 40%, which is going to... And that might also cause really the Stinson Herring Cannery down in Prospect Harbor that's, to announce its closing. I think Friday's their last day. Yeah, they uh, just looked at the stock available, and, and uh, they made a business decision, apparently, that there might not be enough fish coming in there. And in the last uh, sardine cannery in the United States... Uh, going out of business, they're looking into other ways to use the the uh, space, and and you know there was a hundred and something people working down there, so that's not insignificant. Insignificant. Another interesting thing, Steve Rappaport from the Ellsworth American Waterfront uh, brought up that the Stinson Cannery is a huge part of the bait industry on the coast of Maine for the lobsters. A lot of the cuttings go out the back door. Uh-huh. Okay, and they yeah. go into lobster bait, and uh, that is is uh, bigger than most people can appreciate, and uh, not. Um, it's a bit of a mysterious channel. Who knows exactly how much is coming out the back door and where it always ends up? But there was quite a bit of stuff there, and and that's going to change well, the bait makes industry sense. here too. Yeah. And bait is very important to lobstering. We've made the point over and over on boat talk. I think it's uh, almost an aquaculture operation in a way. Um, Think of a lobster trap full of bait as a hay bale thrown into a pasture. And lobsters flock to it when it hits the bottom. And they go in, they fight over the bait. This is from uh, lobster trap video cameras that we've installed and watched. And here's the kicker fact. Um, we find from watching videos of, of lobster traps that 96% of the lobsters that go in go right back out. Come and go. You call yeah. that a trap? I'd call it a feeding station. Well, the lobster fishermen have got other things they're, they're faced with, and, and uh, the most recent thing I've heard about is that there's some of the environmental groups don't want any straight lines in the water. It would save a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? We'd never run into them with our boats, would we, Giffy? You know, that, uh, that doesn't make any sense at all. The uh, To me, uh, it's just... Uh, the lobster industry is is a really a big industry in Maine, and it and it's not just lobster fishermen. It's all the suppliers and the product producers, the finished product producers and handlers of lobsters. It's it's a really a big business, and you know you can't just go around looking for ways to put these men out of business all the time. doesn't make any sense. As you said earlier, now if we uh, want to take all these straight hanging lines out of the water, what about boat moorings? You, you know, where does it stop? Yeah. Yeah, it's a fine line. Where does it stop? Uh, it's, it's a lot of these regulations that have not been well thought out at all. Not at all. And, and mostly the decisions are made. The lobster fisherman doesn't have a chance to really have any input. Yep, and uh, like I say, it's not good times for them. We interviewed uh, Captain Sam Cottle, formerly of Point, Point Judith, Rhode Island, this winter, yeah. and uh, that, that uh, endangered sea. Yeah. Geez, I wish you were here. That was a good time. Well, I, I, I read his book, and it's uh, yeah. very interesting. And the strangest thing was uh, I made a call to a man yesterday to tell him about his book because he was on his old AM radio when Sam's 
Drager, the stormy weather was going down. He, right. Yeah, just years ago. Yeah, he lost yeah. his first dragger as like a 22-year-old, uh, you know, young young fisherman, married, got his own boat, and the damn thing sank on him, and he came back. But anyway, Sam made a great point at the uh, Point Judith, Rhode Island Fisheries Co-op one time. They uh, got a big raft of $2 bills, and they paid all the fishermen in $2 bills, and they watched them bounce around the community, and there were $2 bills everywhere, you know. Pretty quick, there were $2 bills all over Rhode Island and the adjacent, yeah, uh, you yeah, know. Yeah. And there's your, uh, like, say, the web of how it's all connected right there. Yeah, it's, a, it's a big industry, and we should, you know, look for ways to always make things better. But, but you know, you have to use some common sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's people making decisions that really are, are not in a position to know what they're doing. And I think the lobster fishermen should be able to have more input than is being accepted. Yeah, well, the Maine Lobstermen's Association, that's what they do, do and uh, that's who we were just it, talking about. There's one other th item that you want to remember, that <coughs> the lobster fisherman, in another way, is a good friend because he is the number one coast watcher. They're out there every day, and I, I consider them t to be the people that knows, know what's going on, and in a way, they're the first responders. Yep. Yep. You're right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Phone just rang. Yeah. <laughs> Let's somebody, answer it. Somebody just called one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Good morning. You're on Boat Talk. Hi, Fred and St. George. Hey, Fred. Good morning, Fred. How are you today? What's what, what's with a straight line? And uh, uh, does that mean literally up and down or angled or what? <laughs> yeah, that's another question, too. Yeah, yeah. Good question. <laughs> but, but that's their terminology. Sounds yeah. like a line that what's, is somehow anchored to the bottom, I yeah. believe. Would what's be the, the complaint with a quote straight line? They're thinking they're catching marine uh, whales, particularly, yeah. but yeah, yeah, all sorts of. Yeah. Uh, Wildlife that shouldn't be tangled up in those lines that, you know, for, huh. for the last millennia have not been there, and all of a sudden there are a lot of them. But huh. on the other hand, how are you going to haul your trap back up? Yeah. Well, and, and I'm sorry, Fred, but we do need some infrastructure, too. Uh, um, you know, a cell phone tower, for instance, can, can uh, raise objections that it's going to... Uh, Get in the way of birds flying right, by. Right, right. You and know, blades on turbines. You can look at it, uh, you know, any way you want. But, right, uh, right. It, uh, we got to have some kind of some kind of gear around it, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't uh, know. I'd be interested to read or hear what's uh, what's getting tangled in these vertical lines. That's got uh, got some people haired up or some, uh, groups of people haired up. According to Bob Bowen of uh, the uh, Whale Watch, uh, whale entanglement allied expert, whale. yeah, allied whale fella, um, I believe 75% of uh, the right whales that they monitor off of Florida have lines attached to them or scars on them. Huh. And some of that gear has main tags on it. Well, well, now, wait a minute. What do you mean by main tags? The pot would have to be there to have a main tag on it. Good point, Giffy. Good point. Yeah. So, you know, um, there's no tags yeah. that I know of on the line. Nope, may have over-exaggerated that. Yeah, good point, yeah. Some, something wrong there. Yeah. Well, they may be able to distinguish by the, uh, if they had a buoy with it, mm. by the markings yeah, on the buoy. But your average yeah. lobsterman will tell you he's never seen a right whale or, or hardly any other whales uh, either because uh, they have their favorite places. 
and generally that's not where the lobstermen are fishing. Huh. Again, uh, the lobstermen are, are generally near shore, but whales, uh, you know, they're free to go wherever they want to, so right. you can't say they'll never be anywhere. Yeah. Every, everybody wants them protected. That's common yeah. sense. Yeah. But there's, there's other there's ways. There's trade-off. There's, uh, there's other ways to handle that. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, as a neophyte, um, I think the best way to handle it is just by having experienced people uh, that can be uh, very quickly delivered to the site uh, and let them handle it and take care of it. Yeah. All right. Well, and that's the cheapest way out love of it program. also. Oh, thank you, Fred. This Fred, you're, you're what we call a usual suspect, and you're welcome anytime, man. Fred. Okay, yep. <laughs> From St. George, Fred, anyway. Fred, gone off. Can we do one more quick little news thing, then we'll start uh, talking to Chummy and stuff? Here's a uh, from we the banger. We, we have another call. Let's okay, go to that one cool. first. Yep. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi. I just wanted to make a comment. Um, I heard a minute ago about you guys talking about lines showing up entangled in right whales down in Florida. Um, and they do actually have a, a tag on them. Uh, the fishermen weave a little red tracer into uh, the ground lines, so they are traceable. So just just a note. Yeah, well, what Bob told me was that, uh, you know, main gear has been found in Florida waters is, is the way I believe he put it. And, uh, you know, I can't, I can't tell you what the details are. Yeah, so the lines, they do have a little... Tracer weaved into them. Yeah, so they're huh. identifiable to me. That must be a new thing. I when I I think it's a fished, I didn't five <laughs> years old or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That would that would fit. Yep. Okay. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Good morning, and uh, yeah, we're doing boat talk this morning. I thought, like, say, we do one more little uh, quick news yep. item here because it's sort of interesting. The subject we uh, note all the time: people ending up in the water in distress, you know, and in cold water and stuff. And from the Bangor Daily News, canoeist capsizes twice. In the same day, off of Blue Hill. <laughs> and uh, this fella um, had gone out uh, from Blue Hill Falls early Sunday morning, and at some point he overturned his canoe and he swam back to shore. He then returned to his home and he got a second canoe and ventured back out to get the canoe that he abandoned the first time and tipped over the second canoe. <laughs> this time he swam to Long Island, which was closer to him, um, a very large uninhabited island just off of uh, Blue Hill Falls there and uh, landed on Blue Hill on um, Long Island, was rescued by a local people before the Coast Guard uh, boat showed up. And here's the kicker, Alan. He was wearing a wet suit. Well, he should be wearing a dry suit this time of the year, but... Well, probably still, saved his he, life. Yeah, the uh, water was 42 know. degrees. There was a 10 to 15 uh, knot breeze, and the seas were uh, rated at 2 to 4 feet, which would be quite lumpy back in there, but... Uh, there was probably a little chop going. Yeah. Well. And uh, he had a wetsuit on, and that was not comfortable. The wetsuit, of course, the water, cold water will enter, and then it's up to your body to heat that water up to keep you warm. And, and when that first water gets in there, man, it's not a happy time, but um, then you can start sweating in the wetsuit. So. That's your choice. Yeah. Yes, but speaking of small craft, the Coast Guard is right now doing a push on uh, canoes and kayaks, trying to get people to... Uh, Excellent, Alan. Thank you. Put some sort of a label on all their small boats because they have to respond to any any lost small boat that's floating around just to make sure that there's nobody uh, who uh, went overboard with it. And uh, if they can find the, a name tag on the canoe or kayak, they can get usually a pretty quick answer as to whether the person is at home or not. 
The uh, Coast Guard is having a program right now to try to get everybody to label their kayaks and canoes because they haul in uh, something like 60 a season so it's that are just out there drifting around. And if your name's in it, A, you might get it back, and B, they might stop looking for you. So That's a good idea. That would be a good thing. Magic marker, uh, write it on a that's piece of wood. That's reasonable. Stick it up under the deck. I mean, do anything, you know. Yep. Very yep. easy to do. Anyhow, we are doing boat talk this morning, and, you, and then you mentioned... Uh, might talk to Chummy Rich this morning. Well, we're going to be calling him up in about five or ten minutes. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, but we'll uh, proceed on with uh, more people overboard in the um, main coastal news from last month, last March. They pointed out that down east, there's been quite a few people that are lost in um, what they know, what they call now as the Lubeck Cobscook Campobello Triangle. Yeah, there were. Uh, uh, two draggers that went down, and also a periwinkle fisherman who was uh, walking on the shore. On they the were shore, they yeah. were uh, doing that at night and got caught by a rising tide there. Big tide, yes. Yeah, big tide. And uh, if you're out on a flat that is uh, now surrounded by water, it's dark, and uh, you know the water's very cold, and the mud's kind of it's you know it's very dangerous. Yeah, it is very dangerous. Yeah. Many years ago, right, very near where I live on Mount Desert Island, there was a uh, Clammer, who actually got stuck in the mud, and they didn't find him till the tide went back out again, and he was still stuck there. Yeah, yeah it does happen. What a way to go. I'm claustrophobic, <laughs> and I'm trying to absorb that for a minute. I'm very uncomfortable right now. Yeah. Yeah, that would, that would uh, literally kill me, I guess, that way, <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it? Yes. Oh, anyway. one 9378 If you have anything that you're contemplating, Nabel, we're certainly glad to talk about there it. There is one more little um, item here this morning. Um, there is something down to the Maine Maritime Academy right down here in Castine. And mind you, we're going to be interviewing uh, next month, aren't we? The, yeah, Len Tyler. Yeah, the outgoing head of Maine Maritime. Yeah, he's retiring as we speak. Yeah, we'll talk to Len next month. But uh, they have something called the Tidal Energy Demonstration and Evaluation Center, and they have just been certified by the federal government as the only in-stream tidal energy device testing facility in the United States. And they have, I think, two turbines uh, somewhere up in the Bagadoos uh, by Maine Maritime Academy there. Um, there is uh, one little thing that's been uh, interesting here and that they have come under regulations for um, the regulation of hydro energy. Um, impounded water, you know, when this is a different thing. It's called not not a hydro potential energy, as in um, you know uh, a dam, for instance. This is hydrokinetic energy, the water that moves back and forth on its own on a regular basis because of the tides. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, so they're seek they're kind of plowing ground in a <coughs> in a uh, you know brand Maine, new. Kind Maine of is full of places like that could, that could produce clean energy. You would yeah. think so, and and like I say, anything that's spinning on this planet is energy, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, just there's just numerous places where the tide roars through some of these places. Yeah, that's gonna that's a subject that's gonna be going on for quite a few months, I believe. Here on Boat Talk, we're pretty uh, pretty uh, currently strong on tidal power yeah. here, I, but I, we have a uh, Chummy Rich on the phone right now, so let's let's go to Chummy and uh, here it is today. Good morning, Chummy. Good morning, Alan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I hate, uh, sorry to surprise you like this, but I just couldn't help but notice that you were the uh, the cover photo on uh, Maine Coastal News. Yeah. Uh, this month, you're making a uh, 
Uh, I didn't ask Bill if I could use his last name, so we'll just call him Bill for now, another friend of ours. Okay. Uh, a nice wooden boat that he's going to use. I'm, I'm calling it a weekender. Well, that's more or less, yeah. It's a um, small cabin cruiser. Yep, all wood. Uh, all wood. And uh, your grandfather designed it. My No, my father designed it. Oh, okay. Then it's and, a uh, good boat, as far as I'm concerned. That, that's uh, uh, Giffy Full there, Chummy. It's pardon? Yes, Giffy Full you're talking with, too. You know, yeah. you know Giffy. Yeah. yeah. Now, Chummy, your, your father was uh, Robert Rich, right? Correct. And um, he was a fairly well, uh, we built a bunch of boats anyway, and, and around the local area, people go, Rich built, and yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah. And yeah. often they're, they're talking about your dad there. Right. Yeah. I've uh, repaired one of them myself, an uh, old 28-footer. Yeah. Yeah, good old boat. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he built quite a few wooden boats in his day. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question I have for you is, is when he built his boats, there was a lot of good cedar around. Did you have a hard time finding some good wood for this boat? Uh, I didn't normally. Normally you wouldn't have. Uh, I found some perfect oak. The oak was just superb. The cedar that I had uh, was good, but they couldn't get enough out of the woods because of the no frost. Ah. So I ended up. Uh, kind of scrounging around, but normally cedar is not a problem. And it's 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 terrific, it's terrific material for boat building, in my, my opinion. I surveyed an awful lot of cedar plank boats, and very very few ever have much of any rod in them at all on the planking. It is uh, about as good for the um, purpose as you can come up with. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cedar plank over oak frame. Did you get the oak in state? Pardon? Did the, did the oak come from Maine? Um, yes, it did. It's all Maine oak and Maine cedar. That's cool. So it's a, a real native boat then. Yeah. Chummy, this is a bit off the subject of your the boat you're building, but we'll get back to that in a minute. I just want to bounce this off of you and Giffy while you're both sitting right here and fairly experienced. I've been thinking for a long time. Why couldn't you, let's say we had a leaking deck that we wanted to put something over that, uh, again, another layer over the deck and uh, make it watertight again. And why couldn't you use cedar on the deck of a boat as opposed to it's, like a, it's a too pine heavy. deck? or It's a, too soft. Too soft. We use it on soft. porches uh, for houses and stuff. Yeah, it just wouldn't wear long enough. Right. Um, the problem with anything on the deck, soft wood, is it doesn't wear well. Yeah. Plus, it shrinks and swells. Yeah, because traditionally pine has been used for decking often, but right. of course uh, yeah, but not in nobody generally do, not in a work boat. Yeah, nobody does it on purpose no. with not a not in a deck. They use fur. Fur, you can use fur, yeah. uh, but you know, in a pleasure boat, it shrinks and swells. In a lobster boat, it stays wet enough so that it's probably not a problem. But uh, in a pleasure boat, it shrinks and swells so. It doesn't look well, you know, the seams crack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill uh, told me the story yesterday, and I thought it was a good little story, about how you and he came to the agreement to build this boat. you want to tell that little story? Well, you were building a, a wooden dinghy out here, and he and his friend Haywood, and they were talking about Bill getting a bigger boat, you know, a weekend cruiser. And he decided after working on the wooden dinghy that that was something he'd like to do. So he, uh, he and I sat down, talked it over, and shook hands, and that was about it. 
That's it. Yep. We was off and running. Yep. Gentleman's agreement. Yeah. I'll also tell you another little story. Your, your father saved me a lot of grief. Your father and my uh, saved my brother and myself a lot of grief. He was going to build a, a 50-foot passenger boat for us, but he, he just couldn't work it in, and we were desperate for the boat. And he sent us to Red McAllister. Yeah. And uh, which was a which was a really good deed, and Red built us two wonderful boats, and and wound up building a total of seven. Yeah, yeah he was a good boat builder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me, uh, uh, like say on the front page of the Maine Coastal News here, great uh, uh, photo of the boat in frame with the bottom planks already on it. But it says in here, I just kind of skimmed through it. It says in here uh, from the article, it says one of the cardinal sins is letting the owner help on his own boat. It usually adds hours to the building process, but in this case, it is easy to see that all involved are having a great time and loving every minute of it. Is he helping build the boat, Tommy? Yeah, he's here almost every day. Is he good help? Yeah, he's um, good help, and, you know, he's got a pretty good idea what's going on. He wants to learn, and he wants to know what his own boat is made out of. Huh. And... Uh, you know, he's uh, very easy to get along with and understanding. Everything's going fine. Yeah, I remember uh, Bill told me uh, that he asked you if he was going to have hot water on this boat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think he's going to this year. He, he's talking about it, but... Oh, he just told me that you just... Put a tea kettle on no. the stove, you'll have hot water. <laughs> um, actually, what I told him, I wouldn't dare repeat on the radio. No. <laughs> Do we hope to get it launched sometime for this season? It, uh, it probably will be launched uh, around the 1st of July. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are putting our cabin on it and the engine and the cockpit in it. And so we're coming along pretty good on it. And uh, I suppose, like say, nobody's missing the old grinding the fiberglass routine. Oh, no, yeah, but they're going to because the, the whole superstructure is going to be fiberglass. Oh, is it now? Yeah, yeah. it's plywood with glass. So are you going to use polyester or, or epoxy? Uh, polyester. Mm. It's hard to argue against. It really is. got to shed water. The first thing about any boat is it's got to shed water like a duck. That's, right. You know, and uh, that is a good way to keep her uh, waterproof. So when was the last time you uh, got to build any kind of project like this, Chummy? It was 25 years ago. Oh, Jesus, wow. that's uh, kind of a long time. I, I had to scratch my head a few times on this project. Yeah, I, I, Rich was telling me you had to fill in a few blanks, too, from your father's drawings that weren't... Right, we, did, we didn't have a complete set of drawings, so we had to lay it out on the floor full size, you know, do the lofting. And there was a few pieces missing, but uh, we got them filled in, and it came out just about as good as you can get. It looks very nice. I, I took a picture of it and put it up on our website, too, for anybody who's interested. Go to boattalk.org, and you'll uh, go to the... Uh, to the uh, subject that says Chummy's latest wooden boat, and you can see pictures of it there. No, I also took a picture of your shop cat, too, Chummy. I couldn't resist. Not only that, <laughs> but probably your shop smells nice. <laughs> it does. <laughs> uh, well, Chummy, thank you very much for talking about that. We'll probably check in with you when you come close to getting launch time and take some more pictures and okay, well, see what's going on. Um, call or stop in any time. Okay. Thank, thank you, you Chummy. Thank, thank you. you. A brand new rich built wooden boat, a uh, pleasure boat in the uh, MDI. Yeah, uh, you know, Bass Harbor Boat is the name of his yeah. business. Yachting market there. That's an excellent one, thing. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight.
Is that yeah. the boat talk? And the phone's ringing again. We'll get to that in a minute. And uh, perhaps in a few minutes we'll give uh, Steve Rinker up in Hamden a call and uh, talk to him. Steve, a couple of uh, seasons before last, was going to uh, sail around the world in a 10-foot boat. Now, how'd that turn out? <laughs> turned out pretty good, I think. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, we do have a phone call. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. This is Captain Yo. Yo, okay. yo. How's it going this morning? Pretty good, thank you. I just wanted to make a few comments about uh, deck. Twenty years ago, I rebuilt the deck on my little schooner, Annie McGee. And my first advice I received was, put plywood and glass it, and that way you'll get it watertight. Well, I couldn't do that to the old girl. So I looked around a little more, and they, they told me at the boat shops, well, you'd ought to go with... Uh, Pine because it's available clear. Then I spoke to a couple of old timers and they said, well, cedars, the wood to use for a deck. So I drove to, uh, drove nearly to Fort Kent. It was uh, Portage Lake and found a company called Hard Rock Lumber, a bunch of French guys. They didn't speak English too well, so I tried my French on them and Turned out they didn't speak French too well either, but by, <laughs> by a series of gestures and grimaces, I made it clear that the deck I was speaking about was not for a porch, but for a vessel. And they showed me some two-by-five, ten-footer, uh, grade D cedar, which is full of knots, and I said, no, 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 that's not going to work. I need long pieces, I need flitches. So they finally said, oh, well, monsieur, we'll have to charge you twice as much for these long, clear pieces. And I said, oh, well, what will that come to? 80 cents a foot. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll take all you got. That's very affordable. I loaded up the truck to the gunnels and came back. I took the wood to Alan <laughs> Sampson and had him mill the uh, caulking seams. It took me, oh, I don't know, a couple of months to get the whole deck down. I, I nibbed it into the covering boards and did a, did a proper job and while I was in the midst of it, another old-timer came by, and, and he says, looks like you're doing a good job on that deck. And I said, yeah, I said, but there's a couple of, couple of little details I'd like to know about. Have you ever made a deck like this? And he goes, no, too much work. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd have to agree with that. I finally launched the 24th of September. But the reason I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up is that that was 20 years ago. Uh, the boat is planked four-quarter. I used six-quarter for the deck. In that time, the intervening 20 years, the deck has lost about an eighth of an inch of its thickness, and you can see it around the deck plates and that kind of thing. And in retrospect, I wished I'd gone with eight-quarter. But the reason I like my cedar deck, and you know, I call it a work boat, but I'm not dragging traps and stuff across the deck here, and I do ask my passengers to take off their shoes, the cedar was a lot of fun to work. It uh, is very rot-resistant, and it doesn't come or go much. So if you lay the deck up tight, it stays tight. The thing I like most about it is you don't need to finish it. And once it's weathered a little bit, and I have to say I'm sorry I left the old girl out winters for so many years, but once the surface of that deck gets weathered a little bit, it roughens up to the point where it's about the best non-skid surface that you could possibly ask for, wet or dry. And I really like that because formerly the deck was uh, pine, batten, seam, which leaked like a sieve and you couldn't caulk it. And it had been finished with um, linseed oil. And if there was any moisture, even if it was just a foggy day, the oil would kind of look milky 
but it would get slick as butter on a plate. Yep. One false move, and your foot was headed for the lee rail. Huh. So I took a couple of spills, and I decided, okay, it's time to redo this deck. So anyway, that's my comment about decking, and I'm, I'm glad I did it, and I just wished I'd put a little more wood on at the time because I know I'm never going to do it again. Okay, uh, Giffy has a question uh, for you. One more comment. Um, it's, you know, it's same old thing, forgotten. But it was very, very common for big yachts, big expensive yachts, to have a white pine deck. Uh, Herreshoff and particular, particularly Lawley yachts had white pine decks, very common. All kinds of yachts had white pine decks, clear, and it was, you know, just first-class pine. Long lengths, absolutely clear, and it's a beautiful deck, but it uh, doesn't take the wear that teak does. Teak, of course, uh, Yo was saying eighty cents a foot for the cedar. Teak is twenty dollars plus. Oh, about twenty-eight. Uh, yeah, and the reason I asked this in the first place, Yo, was I was looking at a boat. You described the putting down a plywood deck and fiberglass in it, looking at an old wooden boat where they had done that, and the uh, new covering had failed at every corner where it come up against the deck house, where it come up against the hatches. Water was getting under it. So you say to yourself, well, I could put a piece of wood over that and caulk that corner, why don't I just put a whole deck over it? Well, it wasn't done right. Yeah. yeah. yeah it wasn't yeah. done right. I but mean, I was looking at a way to save that, and I thought a cedar deck, or possibly spruce. I'd put spruce down. I like spruce. That's just me. Yeah. Phone's uh, ringing again. Yeah. Well, thanks for running the show, guys. Thank you, Yo. Anytime, Yo. Good morning. We have another caller. Good morning, and welcome to Boat Talk. Hello. Hello. Yes, you're on. Hey, this is Bill Anderson. and Denham. How are you guys doing? Oh, good. How are you? Morning, Bill. What's up? Pretty good. Hey, I heard you talking about Len Tyler and Maine Maritime. I'm another Maine grad. And I just wanted to let you know, we got some info on the ship when I was out there last time. There's a gentleman down in uh, Rockland who has a QMED class that's going to be starting next month. What's that, what's, that, man, what's that mean, Bill, QMED? Qualified man in the engine department. It's an unlicensed engineering position on board ocean-going vessels, and it, it pays extremely well. It's a good career move for a young kid. You know, young guy up here or a girl that uh, that wanted to ship out, you know, see the world type of thing and, and make really good money. Uh, and you, you got to remember, for every one guy that comes out of Maine Maritime with a license, there's two or three required on that vessel, unlicensed positions in the engine room and on deck. Hmm. So, uh, like I said, if you go online, it's it's under uh, Mid Coast School of Technology Adult Education, and I, I don't know all the particulars in the class, but I know that it's a 15 week, 145 hour course. Uh, in the evenings, that when you're done, you'll be able to test for a QMED. Now, normally, if I get a kid right off the street on the boat with a, just an ordinary, just a wiper's license, he's going to spend 180 days on the vessel and then take a test. Mm. So this way, someone working a job now could, you know, could uh, go to school nights, take this program at nights, and then take challenge the test for the Coast Guard and uh, and get a ticket. That's pretty interesting stuff, Bill. Why isn't that advertised on matchbooks like uh, truck driving courses? You need <laughs> one, Absolutely, you know? yeah, it should be. <laughs> because the problem is, he, you know, back when I got out of Maine, we generally the kids took took a job as a deckhand or a QMED with a license, and you worked into the next position. Well, the demand is so great now that the kids are coming out of school; they're going to have a, a job with a, with their license. They're not going to go out there and sail as a QMED. So, actually, like I said, you know, I, those are the guys that we need. You know, the schools put out enough licensed candidates so that we're okay there. 
but it's the unlicensed guys that, that are now, the, the average age of a merchant seaman is like 52 years old now, and uh, it's harder and harder to get younger people into the industry. Mm. Bill, what did you do for your career after you got done with Maine Maritime Academy? Oh, I'm still I'm a captain on a big dredge boat, and uh, we do, I do 21 days on, 21 days off, and uh, couldn't be a better job in the world. That's a powerful thing to, and they pay you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Excellent, Bill. Trouble with when you work on a big dredge boat is when you finally get all done, that's a kind of a, a last ditch effort. Oh, jeez. <laughs> 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 He's the punny one, Bill. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. yeah. on to it this morning. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, he, he wouldn't last long on the boat. <laughs> 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 all right, guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah good morning. And, uh,. Yeah, the phone's ringing again. Then maybe we can get uh, uh, Steve Rinker on the phone after that, Amy, if we can anyway. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning, gentlemen. This is Tim O in Brooklyn. Um, I had first uh, two comments. One was about wind energy. I know we've touched on that before. That There's a study, I think, from the University of Connecticut that looked at the distribution of wind energy in a different way that is looking at it up and down the entire East Coast. And when you look at it that way, suddenly the intermittent problem doesn't exist anymore because the wind is almost always blowing. You know, if there's a front, there's a front line that's somewhere along the east coast, up or down, there's always some wind blowing there. So by putting these, you know, offshore wind turbines, spreading, up, spreading enough of them along the coast, you can reduce the need or, you know, get rid of the need to, that is always claimed that they need backup. The other thing is something I was thinking about, and it's kind of science fiction-y, but it concerns lobsters and traps. And uh, There's an Israeli company that has a ultrasound diver's texting where you have a little bracelet, and they can text you from up in the boat, and they use ultrasound because radio won't go through the water. Well, you could do the same thing if you can transmit any kind of information you could have a small, uh, like diving sub, you know, like a handheld with a line on the back. It could have a grab, a, cl a clasp on the front, and every lobster trap could have its own little beacon that, that was stayed off until you triggered it on with this ultrasound. You could have a pin number so that would identify your traps as opposed to your, uh, your, your competition. And the, the advantages of this, now I thought, well, geez, I should develop it, but, you know, it takes money to make money. So if someone else could do it, first off, you would, you would you'd lose all the environmental impacts, negative environmental impacts of lines, lost lines. Uh, you would also take away all the cost of having, you've got 800 traps, you've got to have all that line for all those traps. Here you need one line for the, for the, the, the robot, the undersea robot. The, the other thing is lost traps, as long as your little beacon under there is operable, and if you made them robust enough, that's a small thing you could protect on there. This thing, even if the trap got mangled up, could go down and with a little claw front that would just snap on, grab that trap. Hmm. So, And if somebody cut your trap, I mean, you wouldn't have the problem of somebody cutting your traps, but it would... It would it would change the dynamics of territorial conflicts out there. It would just change everything. 
It'd be you pretty could, hard to tell what your territory was, yeah. too. And if you got the right garage door opener, you could have anybody, You could have lots of different traps, man. Well, you, you, I mean, you could protect it with a <laughs> PIN number. Just your, I mean, your bank account's protected with a PIN number. Yeah, right? uh, yeah. teasing that's, a little bit there, Tim. Yeah, yeah it's I, know, kind of I, I know. All those things are possible. The only problem is uh, lobsters would sell for $22 a pound. <laughs> Not necessarily, though, because if there's enough lobstermen the, the world over... So, I mean, there was probably somebody might have made that same argument when they said we're going to make the traps out of out of uh, wire mesh instead of making them out of wood locally. You know, they're made less they're made less locally now than they used to be because it's it's more of an industrial process to make traps and the materials to make traps. Whereas before they used to just go out in the woods and get it. So they could do this, but someone would have to start and 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 make the initial investment. And I think once you did, it, it would be a big seller. It's it's something you'd, you'd have one little robot with a line in, instead of a instead of you know how many you know how, and depending on how deep you go how many yards and yards and yards of of, of line and you got to replace it and and mm-hmm. just a thought yeah just well thought. Yeah. it's <laughs> it takes a lot of good minds to figure yeah. out what to do with this problem because like as Chummy says we're all trying to do good for the whales. Just had a uh, meeting uh, down in Rockland of lobstermen from all over the world, Australia, Ireland, for instance, uh, you know, and uh, got together and talked to, uh, you know, kind of an international forum. And lobster fishing varies greatly around the world. Uh, the lobsters are different. The gear is different. The amount of effort is different. But uh, we are kind of the center of effort when you get right down to it here on the coast of Maine. It is because regular lobsters, as we think of them, that come from Europe, it's a very narrow latitude yeah. that you catch them in. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see if we have a Steve Rinker, I think, maybe coming up on the line. Oh, no, we don't. Uh, Amy's kind of talking on the phone there, I back and forth. and shout out a, a little quick notice to people who are, who are on the internet and are listening to this show. There's some other shows that are sort of related that may be of interest to you, too. One is down in southern Massachusetts. Captain Lou has a show he calls Nautical Talk. It's at nauticaltalk.com. Nautical Talk Radio, he calls it. And uh, Captain Lou is award-winning. He won the best interview of the award in the Boston market a couple of years back, and it says he has also been awarded the uh, best public affairs radio broadcast in the Boston radio market twice. Nobody's ever uh, even offered us an award, Alan. I don't even know any awards were possible, let alone, you know. Um, so Captain, Captain Lou's Nautical Talk Radio, and, uh, you know, maybe we'll talk to him sometime. Captain Lou is a power boater. He's uh, like a squadron uh, commodore kind of thing. He goes to a lot of meetings, and, and I think he uh, probably does it a little different than we do. But I see on his list of people he's talked to here, uh, we share a couple of guests. But we never talked to uh, Jacques Cousteau, for instance, or Billy Joel is on his list. We haven't even talked to our neighbor Linda Greenlaw yet. So well, ch- um, Giffy's talked to Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Giffy used to survey Jacques' boats. Isn't that true, that, Giffy? That's correct. He wouldn't yeah. have a boat without you looking at it. And again, we were bragging up Giffy's uh, uh, credentials earlier. And there you go. That's a that's a good. Uh, Here's one more quick uh, 
website to check out. This is more of a, uh, a literary, a nautical-oriented literary website, but by a guy named Chris... I forget, Chris, Chris Kleinfelter. He's yes. out in Washington State, I believe. SeawordAdventures.com. Yeah, he got a hold of us. He, that's a maritime-oriented blog, and, and uh, he found Boat Talk on the web a while ago and has been tuning in for a year or more, and... Uh, so he, he emailed out to us, and, and there we go. So he, he's a good writer. He writes some interesting stories. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. And uh, speaking we, of emails, I just finally have been talking about uh, working on the Boat Talk website for a long time, vague uh, threats. But the tool wasn't there, and I finally landed a laptop. And uh, that was about the first email I ever got from Steve there, and now I've sent one, too. So we're going to start working on the Boat Talk website <laughs> finally there. We do have Steve on the on the. Uh, on the line. Just by coincidence, you yep. think. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, morning Steve. Steve. Hey there. Steve Rinker up in Hamden. How are you this morning? Doing pretty well. Thanks. Yep. About a, uh, uh, the fall before last, uh, we talked to you, and you had got interested and involved in a, uh, a race around the world in uh, micro sailboats, and literally uh, you built yourself a 10-foot sailboat. Yeah, that was uh, about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you How'd you uh, first come to uh, get involved with this uh, race? There, what What sparked that, Steve? Well, let's see. Um, you know, I've been a fan of sailing my whole life, and you were just talking about getting a laptop and and having access to the internet, and you know, finding out just how much wealth of knowledge there is about sailing around the world going on, and uh, I was probably doing a search. I don't recall exactly. I was probably doing a search, looking for, you know, doing some research on the history of sailing and uh, reading more about Serge Testa, and then I think I found a link to the Around in 10 website from there. And uh, so they organized this race. Uh, um, you know, several people actually did build boats, but the race never happened. Yeah, you know, the the race suffered from the same uh, dynamic that my own project suffered from, which was not being able to generate enough interest and enough money to keep it going. And the Serge Testa fellow who you uh, referred to earlier, he sailed around the world in a 12-foot boat. Yeah, you know, Serge Testa, he, he did it without any corporate sponsorship. Uh, he, you know, it took him... Three years, he really he suffered pretty hard to make it happen, and uh, probably in several different ways. Yeah, physically, it, financially, physically. I'm thinking. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, very many ways. He, he's a he was a very driven in, individual, and and that's really what it takes to do something like that. So anyway, you had this dream. You built a little and designed a ten foot boat. You called it Floating Bear. You built it in a spare bedroom. Yep. Slid it right. out the second story window. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, it's true what they say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. You you use what you have and and uh, you make it happen. Did you enjoy the building process? Oh, it was wonderful. I I love everything about boats. I, I love to build boats. You know, I started out doing uh, repairs on people's skiffs, and then I got into uh, cedar strip canoes for a little while and, and it's you know I'm a woodworker I'm a carpenter and you know it's true what they say a house is just a poorly built boat <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I love I love building boats it's very rewarding 
Now, you were also, uh, Steve, going to uh, think a little bit outside the box. We're proposing to power this thing with kites instead of a traditional little mast and sail. And yeah. as we kind of pointed out from the research I, I looked at, kite sailing is a very athletic event, and they crash sometimes, and there's all problems involved in that. But you took the boat down to Florida, you got some kites, and you rigged it up. What happened? Yeah, well, you know, kite sailing has been around not quite as long as traditional sailing. I think the first one was in the 1800s, somebody sailed over to Coney Island with a, a kite-powered boat. And you're right, it's it's uh, it's a new sport, really. Um, the kite sailors who use the boards are very athletic people, and they spend a lot of time in the water getting wet with their wetsuits on. And, and I... I I knew that the idea was going to require a lot of practice and a lot of development. and So I went to Florida with the boat and some kites with the idea that I'd, I'd try it out. And basically, you know, I, I had just barely gotten to the point. I finished the boat down there. Uh, and I was just getting to the point where learning how to power it with kites when the whole thing kind of fell apart with the money and everything. And I didn't get the chance. The next step was... Uh, to go down to the Keys where you could get some steady trade wind and I just didn't feel comfortable with that because I didn't have a chase boat and I wasn't going to go out there and just become a, another check mark on some guy, some Coast Guard guy's list, you know. I yeah, I, I support you for that. I, I uh, pointed out when we talked to you a long time ago that uh, um, I thought it might be courageous to build the boat uh you know, uh, try her up and uh, get everything and, and then actually make the decision not to go, you know, would re actually require some courage after all that, wouldn't it? Yeah, you know, you hear about the, the the success of actually completing the journey, but nobody really wants to hear about all the hundreds of hours that go into the preparation of it. It's not very exciting, but it's it's just as rewarding, really, and it, it takes um, you know, you could argue that it more goes into the preparation than the actual uh, event itself. That's sort of what I was trying to point at was uh, when I asked you about building the boat, too. I mean, you had the dream. You built the boat. There yep. was a lot of time spent, uh, you know, in the dream there, and ultimately it could have killed you. And uh, <laughs> you're still here. <laughs> yeah. Where, where's so, the boat, Steve? Uh, I left the boat in Florida. I, um, I took off most of the gear. And uh, I left the boat with a friend of mine who I was staying with in Florida, and he and you know he's an artist and a and a, a would be boat builder, and uh, he ended up turning it into another little sailing boat uh, project, the hull itself, and then the gear I stripped and brought back here. Interesting. Um, you also had a uh, you had a little rough uh, health. Uh, Luck too, didn't you? Well, a lot has happened in the last year and a half, for yeah. sure. And, uh, um, yeah, I had a, I forget what the doctors call it, but you have, it's uh, its kind of like a mini stroke where it's um, not as serious as a stroke, but it's just as scary. And uh, my mother passed away, and I had a, a heart tachycardia event. And, um, but, you know, a lot of good stuff has happened, too. I've had some opportunities to go sailing in that time. Uh, I went out to the Port Townsend Boat Show and 
Washington last year. That was a lot of fun. And uh, I sailed down from Port Towns into California on a, a Roberts 34 steel hull sailboat for a, couple, a week or two. And that was that was a nice trip. Yeah. Um, I recommend get, if anybody happens to not know what to do with themselves in the first couple of weeks of September, and you find yourself out in Puget Sound, uh, heading out to Port Townsend for the Wooden Boat Festival is, is a remarkable experience. I, I look at uh, Port Townsend, Washington, is kind of like the sister city of, of Brooklyn, Maine. It's kind of like the other uh, hotbed of, if you would, of, of wooden boat building. In, in America, that I look at Brooklyn, Maine, and Port Townsend, and Puget Sound as kind of the two wooden boat building centers of, of America. Yeah. Well, Steve, we've, I've been wondering about you, um, like, say, ever since you uh, uh, proposed this thing, and we talked to you last time, and, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, um, like, say, we, we um, I like to frame stuff about dreams around boat talk, you know, and, and it's hard, yeah. uh, you know, looking at other people's, uh, dreams critically sometimes or even your own uh but um you know um, um i'm glad you're still here and and that you had the experience man yeah me too and yeah uh, thanks all right well thank you steve good talking to you good morning right, steve ranker up in hamden yeah. yeah and we have uh only about five minutes left and yeah, one more another, person on in the line somebody else so on the phone good morning the last person good morning yes hi good morning um this is margaret hello um, margaret Hi, I just wanted to acknowledge the fellow that called um, with the idea for this, I guess it was sonar and um, um, ro robotic lobster gathering idea. And I think probably if he wanted to promote the idea to get somebody interested, he might find a receptive audience perhaps um, in the Florida Keys, where there's a whole lot of diving going on, there's certainly lobstering or and, and that sort of thing. But I think it's great that um, that he has put oh, yeah. his mind to it. Yeah, yeah. The University of Maine leads the world in lobster research as well. In particular, there's a uh, fellow named uh, Dr. Bob Stenick, who uh, you know. Yeah, I'm familiar with. Yeah. Um, if there was any possibilities there, maybe the university would be an interesting we place to call head. And ask Oh, definitely, definitely. It's just, just thinking. Uh, yeah, I had a similar idea once too of uh, having the buoys actually um, tied or not tied up, but um, coiled up on the top of the lobster pot and have some sort of a, as Mike says, a garage door opener effect that would release the buoy. Well, that's gone on for forty years. That was my first vision, too, uh, an infl inflated yeah. balloon, you know? Yeah. I did research work on that sort of thing for oil companies a long time ago. Oh, well, there you are. See, I, I, you, you, you all didn't make much of a comment about it, so I, I just thought, well, maybe, you know, that's just a little too science fiction, but it seems you all thought about it already. Oh, no. It, it, so that's it, great. We need all the minds we can get I'm on sure this. sure the fellow who called will appreciate knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret, there's... there's um, you know, uh, how many possible solutions to any given problem, but awful, often the simplest one is the best, you know. Yeah, the old let the, uh, the, the air out of the truck tires when the truck's stuck in the, in the tunnel. Well, yeah, there's a good example. I'm just thinking as a, as a sailor, I'm always prone to tie a piece of rope onto anything. So, you know. Hey, there um, you go. And that's where it comes from. So. Thanks for the program. Yep, good morning, well, thank Margaret. You, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, another hour has sailed right by. Time for us to make room for On the Wing with gentleman Jim Bahoosh coming up in just a couple of minutes here on Boat Talk. Well, that goes pretty fast, Giffy. We're so back. So glad to have you back for the season. Well, good to be back. Hey, yep. A couple quick announcements for an upcoming Sea Shanties concert. It's going to be happening April 19th uh, at... Uh, doesn't say where. Ba- 430 Bayside Road in Ellsworth. Jim Payne and Fergus it's going to be. And they're also going to be at the Unity Center for Performing Arts on Thursday, April 22nd at 7.30 p.m. Sea Shanties. Let's mention on the way out, the uh, Boat Talk theme in the background is by our friend Schooner Fair. It's a uh, traditional Newfoundland shanty called Eyes the Bai, who builds the boat, and Eyes the Bai, who sails her. And uh, that's sort of us around Boat Talk here. Anyway, second Tuesday every month. We'll be back, and uh, it's up on the web at BoatTalk.org if you're interested. Thanks for tuning in. is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982,